You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, August 31st, and this is your host, Stephen Avella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. And we have a special guest all the way from Sydney, Australia, Richard Saunders. Well, hello. Richard. Thank you. Yes, you're doing retired. the Bob hello. Yes. <laughs> oh, Bob hello. It's, you, know, you know what? I got to say something. <laughs> our, our Australian counterparts love the Bob hello. It's very really? odd. Really? Yes. Iran, that's like the biggest joke that Iran and I laugh about. You and I always laugh about yeah. it. We marvel at Bob's. Does anybody know the Bob's very first episode hello? Episode, episode one. one. Go back to episode one. <laughs> listen to you haven't heard it. Uncomfortable and weird Bob. And Bob's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Steve played that back, like what, a decade later? I'm like, you made that up. That's not me. I, I don't, because I had no knowledge of ever doing that. And then I'm thinking, why would I do that? That doesn't sound like me to do something so stupid. <laughs> you choked. You choked on episode brain. one. But that's that's the same voice you used in the uh, the Solar Flare adventure, uh, Jay. Yeah. Yes. He played evil Captain Jay Novella in a space adventure I wrote, an, an audio adventure. And the phone rings on the spaceship. It's an Australian spaceship. So the phone rings. Hello? Well, hello. <laughs> it's become a meme. You know what's amazing? Just absolutely, utterly amazing about the web. Yeah. I can play that right now. Oh, you can play which right oh, now? I could play the hello yeah. right now. Bob's hello. Yeah. So while you're doing that, I'll <laughs> mention that Kara's not with us today because she's in Africa. So um, that was our in- our old intro music. Science. Put it next to you. Episode No. No. That's why we no longer use it. This week's show, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is. May 4th, 2005. I'm your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Uh, With me, as always, is uh, Perry DeAngelis. Hello. Hello. Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. And my skeptical brothers, Bob Novella. Hello. What the hell? (laughs) I'm still thinking fake it. What the hell, Bob? Yeah, it makes no I, sense. Love, I love to think like Bob is like I'm gonna sound jazzy. I'm gonna I'm gonna no. have a jazzy tone to my. What were you radio? What were you doing, for? Bob? What was happening? That's just it. I can't I can't put myself in a mental you state where I'm like, that's a good mind. idea, Bob. Let's do this. It just not it's not me. Like alternate universe, Bob. <laughs> your your first utterance to the rest of the world, and that was it. That was so Jay so mentioned beautiful. you mentioned meme like it, or Evan. You said it's a meme now, and uh, so I'm in the elevator and. I love what they do to the elevators during Dragon Con because there's, there's this Hawaiian woman on the top and they put googly eyes in every elevator. They put the oh, googly eyes yeah. every Dragon Con. And I saw a sticker today. I'm like, what is that? And it said, it said, it said warning. Somebody put there, put this. I'm a class three mimetic hazard. Uh, limit exposure to me whenever possible. Photographs, documents, and conversations about me must not leave the containment area. Just a funny, goofy sticker that would only happen in Dragon Con. But I love the idea of a Class 3 mimetic hazard. Stay away from me. (laughs) Uh, So we are at Dragon Con 2019. We should mention that. 
Uh, we record a live show every year at DragonCon, uh, at least for a number of years, and we record a private show, which is always fun. This is our most off-the-rail episode of the year, this typically. Can you show, tell? Yeah, yeah the DragonCon private show. We this is where we sort of you know, let our hair down and... And I let the, give these guys a little bit more rope than I usually give them. And so I thought uh, it would be fitting. I thought I ri ran across this news item this morning. I'm like, this is perfect for the DragonCon private show. It's a, it's a total tabloid. The the Daily, uh, the Daily Star, the Daily Star in the UK, which is a total rag. And here's the. I'll just read you the the headlines. All right, so sex robots coding error prone, right? And the article is about how these sex robots are strangling their owners. Well, is that like an asphyxiation no, not, uh, uh, fantasy or, you know, fetish? Well, that's, that's the question. Is this a feature or a bug, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think they're predicting. It's more of a prediction than like this is happening, right? I mean, right, I, yeah. But you read, you read further. It's like this one guy who's saying that this is the, something we need to be concerned about. No, it isn't. Wait, but you got to demand. Take the thirty thousand foot view of this. Yes. Some somebody sat down and wrote an article about their fear of being strangulated by a sex robot. By, a by his sex robot. robot. Is strangulated a word? Strangulated is now. Strangulated. Strangulated. <laughs> being strangulated. Isn't it? Yeah. I, 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 Strang Strang strangulation, but strangled. Strangled, strangled. Oh, strangled, yeah. Strangled. So now it sounds weird to me. Strangled, <laughs> right? Strangled. <laughs> All right. So the, my, question, my question for you guys about this article is, first off, is it real? I mean, the, the article is real. So the author actually has a fear of this happening. It's not the, the, the author is a journalist, and they're writing for a tabloid, journalist. and they got this scientist to say, are there any risks of you know the of of having these? Because you know, so so there, sex robots are a thing, right? This is an industry now. Um, they're and they're they're starting off as being completely unresponsive, right? They're basically dolls, right? So the real doll, the sex doll, that's a thing. Yep. And uh, in fact, Kara visited the factory, if you recall, yeah, right? She did. Um, but now they're starting to add animatronic features to. The otherwise completely passive. You know, and this sex is dolls. literally the beginning of Androids. Yeah, so the sex dolls are evolving into sex robots, which means they have to have some kind of algorithm. Apparently the Chinese are really working on this hard. Uh, they have to have some kind of algorithm that, that controls their behavior, right? Yeah. And so this guy was basically saying as these algorithms get more sophisticated, as we actually start to have real artificial intelligence, that we have to worry about that, you know, these, the sex doll may decide to kill, you know, their owner or their user, or like a hug may turn into an asphyxiation. It was like. Well, he was, he was saying that one error, one error one could, could cause them, could, could cause them to, to choke you. And then he's yeah. like, well, we, we know robots are really strong. So of course it would be, you know, the person wouldn't be able to defend against this really strong robot. Like, well, it, it is, I mean, yeah, but we can control, yeah. I mean, you can make them strong, you can make them weak. Why would you make something that is, is, is getting to each their own when it comes to these sexual fantasies you know, man. <laughs> you, know? you could make the same argument about a modern car. Yeah. If a glitch sure. in the computer and it decides to exactly. accelerate. All right, or industrial robots, right? I mean, no, no. sure. No, not your car. <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm just blown away by how odd the article is just crazy. Absolutely. It's just like, what, yeah. He, he, he achieved his goal. We got our attention and we got, you know, just yeah. sex robot yeah. alone gets Attention. That's well, so that's want. horrible journalism. There's no question oh, about that. But I did want to use it as a jumping off point just to talk about the whole sex robot thing because, you know, this is a staple of science fiction in a way. There are numerous 
uh, movies or you know any time where there's a the future where this technology is possible, it, oftentimes it exists. Well, Westworld, I think, has the best version of Westworld it. Westworld is a whole story built around this. Oh, gosh. Basically. Yeah, it is. Uh, the, if you go back to the original from the, the 70s, that's basically, you know, the, that was a, a huge feature was, was yeah. that they were basically sex robots. Pris in Blade Runner? Yeah. She was yeah. a, a, essentially a sex robot. Pleasure. 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 Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. A pleasure model. Uh, Cherry 2000. Anyone here see oh, the movie sure. Cherry yeah, 2000? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Melanie Griffith. Melanie Griffith that did a very convincing, uh, well, she was a human, but there was, um, the story revolved around a man's quest to find a chip to fix his, his damaged sex robot. That's basically the, could you extend story. this to the to the holodeck? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. The holodeck is sex robots on demand. Yeah, yeah. and that frequently goes completely yeah, okay, yeah, doesn't it? The holodeck and yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, they don't really. They never mention it though. That you know, right? You know, when, you know, they know oh, that. You know that wink, wink, nod, nod on the Enterprise. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go on the uh, holodeck, and I'm going to go canoeing. Yeah. Oh, remember when Riker says, yes. <laughs> hits his communicator? I'll be on the holodeck. He meets that metamorph who was actually actually evolved to to make herself morph into somebody that's perfect for you. So so he kissed her a couple of times, and she was apparently very good. So he's like, all right, I'm going to go to the holodeck, which is yeah, right. the most obvious. That was nod. the most obvious re reference right. to something that we all know is happening yep. on the holodeck. The whole, the whole idea came to fruition in the Orville. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, yes. Beyond the beyond. So, uh, so uh, you know, let's let's ask you. I want to ask you guys in the audience some questions about, like, are sex robots like an unhealthy thing for society? Is it's like oh, wow. there's lonely people? I get it. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I don't know. Like, there is something about people <laughs> sharing intimacy. Oh, that's that's actually where I wanted to go with the whole. That's the interesting question here: is what is the effect of when we have the technology? We have it now, right? So we have sex robots now. It's just a matter of how sophisticated they are. So they're only going to get more sophisticated from here. And, you know, they're already in significant demand. So I think there's no question that this is going to be increasingly a thing as the, as the robots get better. And what will that, what will be the effect on society? And is it, a, is that a, a, is it a, a healthy thing? And again, you can always argue that it's probably going to be just like everything else. There'll be sort of a legitimate kind of use and there'll be abuse and there'll be everything in between and hacking. It'll be, it'll, all that'll happen. Yeah. But, you know, you could you could make an argument for how it could be a healthy thing for certain individuals who may therapeutic. You know, it could be therapeutic, but it also can be easily abused. You know, or turn into an addiction, or turn into a diversion from you know more healthy relationships or more you know traditional yeah. relationships. Well, that's the part that I think is, is yeah. troubling because you know once you know you get we have human needs, right? Yeah. And like the idea that someone would like turn inward almost. To yeah. like, they're not really with a person, and they're not gonna like. For, I don't think. I think it'll be a, a very long time before, even even if it's not conscious, before uh, the, they could fake a human well enough where you might get something even meaningful out of it. Mm -hmm. But but the idea of someone like just sequestering themselves inside of a, of their room and like just kind of I don't know. I just feel yeah. bad for that. I think we have to distinguish between the act, the sex act itself, uh, which isn't necessarily. Uh, a huge yeah, issue, the, the but emotion. but yeah. but it's but having the relationship with yeah. something that's clearly not a sentient construct. Yeah, I, it's, it's it's complicated, uh, and it's only going to get get more complicated. But the other thing is, if you look at the uh, the existing sex robots, they are not you know they don't represent a a average female or a typical female. This connects back to I mean they have you know. 
exaggerated bodily features in well, certain I mean, directions. Barbie, Barbie doll doesn't yeah, really exist. Yeah, yeah there's, there are male, there are male and female, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a, there's a good book called Super Sense, which is all about the fact that uh, you know we evolved certain sensory feedback loops in our brain. Right, we like the taste of sweet things and of fat, and and certainly we have these, these sensory sexual feedbacks as well. But we now have the technology, the ability to cater to those feedback loops in a way that goes way beyond anything that we encountered in our natural evolutionary state, right? Like what? Well, like cheesecake. You know, like we didn't evolve with cheesecake in the Serengeti, right? But now we could make things that overwhelm our, our liking for fat and sweet and whatever. They didn't have cheesecake, they had cheetah cake. You know what I'm going to say, Jay, don't you? Musky sticks? Musticks. Musticks. Yeah, musticks. But Jay, it's like candy is like weaponized food in, weaponized. in a lot of sense. <laughs> weaponized it really is. And that's, remember that Judge Dredd uh, comment? Yes. Yeah, yeah. An ingredient in food that was so delicious. It was a candy. It was a candy that was so delicious. You became highly, addicted to it. It was highly addicted. addicted. I mean, right. they, they actually put him in jail. The guy who invented it, Judge Dredd, put him in jail because yeah. it was a so that was, crime Now against... I have to know, going from Richard, like, what's your, what's the, your weak, what's like the most delicious thing to you? Like, your weakness. Like, don't tell me about what, like, you'd like to eat for dinner the most. Like, what's that? My weakness? The sweet thing or something that's, like, not good for you. Uh, the thing that I struggle with not eating is are peanuts. Mm-hmm. peanuts. When when I eat peanuts, little things pop in my brain, and I just feel so good. That's I don't buy big things of peanuts. If that's yeah. what I get, that's what I get. Yeah, but the, the, from crunching them to the taste to yeah, I'm, <laughs> right now, I'm starting to <laughs> easy, Richard, easy. Over and here. at times at at home when I've been had a bad day or something, unscrew a peanut butter jar. Oh, yeah. Put it back yeah. on, and I feel it a bit better. I, now, is that from uh, when I was a kid and they were around? I, I, I don't know. The, the second on my list would be root beer. Richard, yeah. do you ever rub the peanut butter on your skin? <laughs> no? We can try that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so another example offered in the book is porn, right? It's pornography. That there, it is erotic stimulation that is also above and beyond what we would normally encounter, you know, that it, and it's, it does by design, you know, and, and that's, that is now the new cultural feedback loop is to, we'll keep one-upping and one-upping and one-upping the stimulation, right? So we get cheesecake or whatever. And then we also get pornography that is way beyond the erotic stimulation that, you know, the evolutionary, uh, it required to perpetuate life. Context of, of the erotic stimulation. And now you, you go beyond that to a sex robot where you have everything is exaggerated. So what will that do? So the, the concern is, the concern is because, and this is just neuroscience, right? So in neuroscience, um, the way the brain works is that when you, the more you stimulate a system, the more it gets downregulated, right? So downregulating basically means that it responds less and less to further stimulation. That's how it sort of reaches the equilibrium point. You get tolerant to it, wow. yeah. That's that's the way. That's the that's a fundamental aspect of the way our our nervous system. Do, you, do, do do neurologists have a theory about why? Well, yeah, it's there to to keep things from going out of control, right? So the more something gets stimulated, the more it sort of in, it gets inhibited. This is uh, true of cocaine, these kinds of drugs as well. Yes, that's part of. So that that phenomenon is called tolerance. That's actually the technical name for it. But it's also how our senses work in general. I mean, in Jay, general, Jay, yeah. you're wearing you're wearing a shirt. Can you feel that shirt right now? No, when you first put it on, no, you, you could feel it, but now, now you can. But, you're, you're, but what your senses are doing are the senses do not de- necessarily de- detect what you think they detect. They detect change. That's All right, so what, it's a good that's thing. That's what's important. That's a good, a good thing. Well, yeah, have you ever come home after a long vacation mm-hmm. and your house smells? Yes. Right? And you're like, does my house always smell this way? Yes, it does. You just stop noticing it after a day. 
yeah. right? But then you you become you know de uh, tolerant yeah, to it, and then you you, you, you become my my, my you the, notice it again. The women in my family, immediate family, for some reason, have a penchant for perfume, mm-hmm. and they've gotten so used to it that they what I think bathe in it practically. <laughs> and I go to see them or something. I can't. Rachel, my daughter will tell me. You cannot get near them. You'll hug them. It will come it's off on you. Perfume. But they don't sense it. And I tell them, I said, you're wearing way too much perfume. They have no idea that they're wearing too Did much Did they perfume. believe you? Or did they take it to heart and say, okay, maybe? About the 14th time I told them, they started to take it to heart. Right. Peanut well, that, butter perfume. That's what you need. <laughs> that's interesting, Ev, because I noticed that, um, like, my, like my, old, my grandparents, as an example, like both of my grandmothers had that perfume thing going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that might be an artifact. Of that too, like yeah, like they had, I guess they got used to the smell. They're, they're desensitized, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same with Evan. Evan's family has to. There's no way that they're smelling what you're smelling. Exactly right. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. They can. So yeah, it's it's partly it could be partly age, but it's also partly that if you wear perfume every day, then you get less sensitive to it over time. It. But so the same thing. You know, so in the book, the you know, about the super sense, the thing is that that happens to pretty much anything, and so the concern is that if we set our, if we calibrate our system to this super stimulation, then we don't respond as much to what is sort of the ordinary everyday but, stimulation. But time goes by, it kind of resets, right? Well, well, not if you're doing it all the time, though, right? So well, I did when I was a teenager. Yeah. Well, but like, so <laughs> that's kind of personal, don't you think? Yes. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. So that's the concern, is that people will sort of calibrate their senses to these, uh, you know, idealized other sex. So what you're saying is, let's take this to the nth degree. How big are boobs and butts going to be after you've been having sex with a sex doll for five years? Like, is this going to get to the point where you like they're popping out the windows? Well, I mean, they're all penises are going to be running down the streets. (laughs) Well, just the point is that yeah, it's like it's beyond. What is, what is, you know, uh, typical of human beings. So but the I'll, bottom line is, are sex robots gonna spoil you for sex with, with you? Don't they well, think that porn is no, doing that to people today? That's though? the concern. Yeah. No, they're not, because I, you don't that, know that. I do know that. I know things that are gonna happen. <laughs> uh, that Wait, con- did you that just say I know things that are gonna happen? Yeah, some things. <laughs> what are you, um, the de- the, listen to me, listen to my argument. The dichotomy between the robot and people, is it gonna last that long? Because at some point, we're gonna have control over Things about our human body that it would be very easy to to change our appearance much easier than we can now. Now you have to go through plastic surgery. In a few generations, it's going to be much easier to look any way you want to look. Any way you can make you can without going through yeah, major surgery. A lot of so people wouldn't think that that's a good thing. So you're saying we're going to have to make ourselves look into sex robots to compete with the sex robots? I'm, I'm just I'm just saying that the distinction between the sex robots and people are it's it's going to take us wherever our psychology wants it to go. It's so basically, the world's going to turn robot. in the dragon con. It'll be a reflection. Woo! It'll be a reflection of, of the culture. <laughs> like Ready Player One in that in that VR reality. Um, you know, everybody there was. Mm-hmm. You know, your avatar. And some people had outrageous avatars. And, you know, I remember reading that book and tripping out on that, like going like, well, first of all, like, I think a lot of people would start off like wanting to be in a human form. And I bet you, like you're saying, it's like like slowly over time, you're like, well, I'm going to make myself a little taller. Well, I'm going to make my teeth a little longer, you know. Mm-hmm. The next thing you know, like a year later, you're the Hulk. Plot of a Bruce Willis movie. Yes. Yeah. Called- Surrogates. That was cool. That was cool. Can make an idealized surrogate of yourself to live out your life while you're safely in a chamber. The thing that scares me, though, a lot, and I'm dead serious about this, is that 
our outward appearance has a massive effect on our psychology. Mm-hmm. Like, you know this better than I do, Steve, but like the fact, like if you looked like the Hulk, I, like things that I've read about this say that like, if you all of a sudden looked like the Hulk, it would change your personality. It would change your perception sure. of yourself. It would change right. the way you think about yourself. And what's going to happen when we have almost total control over our appearance? It's going to not be good, Bob. Augmentation? It's not going to be good. I don't, I, my prediction is that's going to be well, very... It won't be good uh, but by, from whose perspective? It may be... It may not be good from our current perspective. It's going to be a fun ride. We're all going to look as good as Jay. Can you imagine Oh, that? God. Ah. Well, but there's also... There's already disorders associated with pressure to look a certain way because oh, of cultural pressure. Yeah. yeah. Is that what, is that what explains those people that have like, they just have so much plastic surgery that they don't. Well, there's, so there's sort of like this plastic surgery addiction. Absolutely. But there's also just, Bulimia? yeah, just eating disorders. Most eating disorders are come from, well, you look through magazines at these idealized people who, and the photos are not Airbrush even real models. anymore. They're not even yeah, more than just airbrushed. They're like now photoshopped. Yeah. So you're looking at people who don't even exist and that becomes the standard that that people judge themselves by and feel like they're being judged by, and then they feel this pressure to live up to this fake, you know, ideal. And again, sex robots could be even could put that on steroids. I mean, that could be even worse because yeah. you could build this hypothetical ideal, you know, person for you know pleasure bot, whatever, and. No, you can't compete with that. And why should people feel like they have to compete with I that? would be worried, too, that it could destroy relationships. You know, it's like... Is it cheating? It's great to have a fantasy life. It's great to have a fantasy life. Yeah. And my fantasy life has, has helped like me limits. in so many ways. Like yeah, but I mean, I, you know, like I was just talking to Joel today, my friend Joel. Uh, we were talking about my wife and my relationship with my wife. And like, you know, like I am... The fa- you know, like, I couldn't imagine doing that with someone that isn't human. Like, you know, there's a real person there. But, like, my relationship with my wife is so important to me and so emotional. Like, it's so emotionally charged. It's so awesome in so many ways. Like, I, I, yeah. I wouldn't want people to make themselves be outside of that possibility of having that interaction with another human being. And then there's it's people critical. who take it to another degree and they predict that this is the end of the human race because, you know, you're going to be doing it with robots. Why procreate? All the time. Yeah. Right. Why procreate at that point? Like, if you want to have kids, you would have sex to have kids, but you wouldn't necessarily have sex to have pleasure because you would do that then with your sex body. Well, maybe you could turn into the Brave New World. Yeah. Where the the, the whole business about women undergoing a pregnancy was just old old school. Yeah, like the bride, like the bridesmaid. The, the bridesmaid's tale. Um, Handmaid's tale. Handmaid's tale. I look, oh, man. When he gets in there, like, I can't correct that. Forget it. It's that, that's it. I don't, you know, like, and they're at a wedding, and it's terrible. No, but that move, that show, like, is so hard to watch. And I, I it, they're, they're, they have to come up with a word that describes, like, loving the painful experience of going through something. Because it's painful. Full. Like I am riding a knife's edge when I watch that show and I get angry and everything, but I feel like I'm learning, you know, yeah. like there's something really good about it too. But anyway, like, like, so the genesis of or the origin of the, that story is that women were, were, you know, men and women were not having babies as much as they used to. And like they're collecting these women who are, I guess, still fertile, fertile. to have babies. But the impact on this extreme society was that religion went just as extreme. Mm-hmm. You know, and man, that can happen. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, and it's funny to tie this, this, uh, sex robot article to The Handmaid's Tale. It's really weird to do it, but I mean, I see a correlation between those things. Yeah, so, I, I, what, I what I suspect will happen is everything. You know, that there will be couples who will use it in a, in a mutual way just to enhance their sex life. Sure, what's wrong with that? But then it'll be, 
It could, for some people, become a form of cheating, which destroys relationships. And it could divert people from, like sometimes, for some people, you know, a relationship could be really hard. And it's like, well, all right, why go through the pain and the trouble of trying to make this thing that's hard for me work when I could just have a sex robot, you know? Yeah, I and, have an answer for that, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, but right? I, think that's, yeah. I think we'll see every sort of permutation of that. Um, and it, it's, it's already happening. It's like we don't have to think, will this happen? It's happening. It's it's just a matter. It's just and it's only going to just get every year. They're they're more sophisticated. When when, when are the authorities, the government of any particular state, going to step in and start to impose regulations about this? Do you think? Not anytime oh. soon. Right now, it's just you know, it's a it's it's, it's, it's a wild west, huh? Wild west. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on to some some other news items. Get off the sex bot thing. So I talk a lot about acupuncture. Acupuncture is. Uh, I was recently asked. What's the alternative medicine that drives you crazy the most? They're all, they all drive me crazy. But I said acupuncture because that's the one that's getting the most play now, and it's taken the most seriously. Um, but it's just as much complete and utter crap as any of the other ones. It's like almost as bad as homeopathy, but it's taken seriously. Uh, but there was a recent review article that I thought was worth, worth mentioning. Uh, the article was by acupuncturists who were reviewing the literature on the uh, the precision and accu- accuracy of acupoints, right? So acupuncture is basically sticking thin needles into acupuncture points in order to manipulate chi, which is flowing through meridians, and that that influences your health, right? It it's allows energy, your body. It's, it, no, it's energy medicine. I, before you continue, because it's funny how I still don't have it all. Like it's so yeah. weird. It, with the needle, is the needle bringing energy in, like chiropractic, like innate intelligence? No, it's just that like, the energy is flowing through your body, and it's stuck right here. So if you stick the needle in there until you release that energy, and then it flows, and then you balance your yin and yang, and all is good, right? Okay, okay. Um, but they, that's a good question because there are different traditions yeah. of acupuncture, and you know, in, not only in different countries, but even within China, there are multiple, multiple traditions, and they uh, uh, adhere to greater or lesser extents to different these different traditions. Like, you know, uh, originally, this is all relevant to this point. Originally, uh, there were 365 acupuncture points. You hey, know why? 365 days of the year. 365 days of the year. Why is that? Oh, thank you. Thanks. Because you gotta go every day. the uh, acupuncture zodiac. is basically astrology. Yeah. Yeah. It is zodiac. literally astrology. astrology applied to the human body and health. Not many people know that that's the history of it. And in fact, there were two basic traditions in China. This is a massive oversimplification, so don't tell me. No, actually, there were, yeah, I know. This is a massive oversimplification. But there were two kind of approaches to the healing in China. There was the herbalism, you know, basically a physical, like, you know, diseases or physical things that we we're going to use herbs and physical substances to, to heal the body. Which is, that's TMC, right? Well, or, or, uh, TCM, like Jewish Chinese, but they, well, Sorry. that's a difference. We'll get there. You can't answer that question simply. And then there was the other approach, which was magical energy, vitalism, chi, the flow. There's and there's the, the five, forest, yeah. the five things like the, the wood, metal, like the five elements. Oh no, no, water, metal, all water, that stuff. Yeah, water, earth, air, metal, wood. That tradition actually fell out of favor like hundreds of years ago in China, and the herbalism, uh, more physical one was ascendant. And to the point that in the 1800s, China was really trying to get rid of acupuncture entirely. It was outlawed more than once in China. Why? Because they, they, it was embarrassing. It was like, this is our old medieval nonsense that we got rid of. And you know, we want to, we want to, to stamp out the last remaining embers of this. And why did they nonsense? succeed? Because of Chairman Mao. 
because in the early 20th century, when the, the communists had taken over, they um, were trying to, basically, a lot of the population was coming from the, going from the, the, the rural farms into more of an urban location. They were basically the rise of the middle class. And, and China was trying to become more of a, you know, industrialized nation. And so now we have a billion people and we don't have a healthcare system, right? That was China's oh, dilemma. Yeah, yeah. So Mao said, okay, well, we can't afford to hire enough trained physicians to give healthcare to a billion people. So we're going to create this barefoot doctor program where we basically, he basically created traditional Chinese medicine. Wow. And he, they literally, you know, he had people write a book. Here it is. Here's traditional Chinese medicine. And they just sort of pseudo, like quickly gave seminars to a bunch of people. You know, Go out there and treat the masses, right? That was their solution to the healthcare problem. And they essentially retconned acupuncture. They basically, they, they ignored all the stuff that it really was, which was essentially bloodletting. Acupuncture was astrology and bloodletting. That was it, right? That was essentially what it was. There was nothing else to it. It wasn't this natural healing, whatever other crap. And it's, it's all, not thousands of years it's old. It's not thousands of years old. It's a hundred, it's less than a hundred years old. And it was invented by, by Chairman Mao's people basically in order to give fake medicine to the masses because they couldn't afford to give them real medicine. And the other purpose for, for it was cultural hegemony. The whole point was we're going to create this traditional Chinese medicine. The whole idea was invented by him in order to promote Chinese culture so that we will have a more standing in the world. Right, and then we're going to export our this new culture that I'm inventing and pretending like it was thousands. It was all a con. Is this Lysenkoism? It was all pro- uh, Russia. It was, it was all propaganda. Yeah, yeah. but it, I mean, it worked brilliantly, and it man. worked. That's the thing. It worked. It, he a generation later, no one remembers. They all the only thing anyone remembers now is the lie. It was the propaganda that was invented for political, you know, cultural. It's hegemony. it's like a science fiction story. It is, and it worked. And now people think that what we do today as acupuncture is thousands of years old. And no, it's not. Yeah. They were bloodletting with lances. They were not sticking these modern filiform needles into acupuncture points. And the whole energy thing was sort of incorporated into this reimagining of traditional Chinese medicine. And they got rid of the whole bloodletting thing. And then, you know, it just was, it was amazing. So the question then becomes, well, what are acupuncture points? What are these acupoints? Are they based on anatomy or physiology or neuroscience or biochemistry or anything real? No. Yeah. They're, they're completely they're, made up. They're like, you know, like it's almost as if someone's like, well, where would they be? Let's put one here. We'll put one here. So, yeah, it's basically based upon metaphor and mythology and narrative, you know, like metaphor like you know, this will be like in some lyrical, poetic way representative. Like this part on your ear represents the liver because it sort of looks like a liver or whatever. You know, like it was all metaphor. It wasn't based on anything real. It wasn't based on science. The idea that there actually would be a correlation between the point on your ear and your liver because that's what, you know, the traditional Chinese medicine has reimagined, you know, by Chairman Mao said it would that that somehow is a basis in reality, is like winning the cosmic lottery. There's absolutely no reason to think that there's any correlation between the acupuncture points and reality, 
right? It would be like saying that the, the it would be exactly like saying that the astrological sun signs actually do determine people's personality. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It would well, have to have evolved these little points, like the rest wait, of why, us. Why, yeah. why would it exist? And why would it exist? Why, there's, no, there's no reason in basic science that they should exist. There's no evidence in basic science that they do, do exist. exist. There's no, they don't correlate to anything real. It is astrology as applied yeah. to the body. And that it can be extrapolated to iridology, right? Iridology, yeah. is, yeah. iridology was invented by a guy, you know, whereas this sort of was, well, it was invented by a guy, but it was sort of pr presented as, you know, traditional Chinese for political purposes. Yeah. These acupuncturists said, okay, well, let's see, what's the evidence for where the acupuncture points are? They weren't really asking the question, do they exist? They were asking, can acupuncturists accurately say where they are? And what they found was that the answer is no. That acupuncturists cannot, uh, with any kind of what we call inter-rater reliability, right? Inter-rater reliability basically means that if I use a scientific tool to measure X and Evan uses the same tool to measure X, that we come up with the same answer, or at least close enough. How close is the precision, right? The same answer is accuracy. How close to the, is the precision? But, in, but if we, if different raters come up with the same answer, then you have inter-rater reliability. And inter-rater reliability is considered a necessary component of what we call external validity. External validity is a technical way of saying it's real. It exists in the real world. It exists out there, Replicate. external to whatever system we have of thinking about it, right? So they basically proved, without setting out to do so, that acupuncture has no external validity, which is another way of saying it ain't real. Steve. Yeah. All right. So I'm I'm trying to like turn this into to something a little more tangible. So Evan, well, that wasn't tangible. No, it was. But like, no, right here. I mean, because <laughs> okay. I'm just thinking like, okay, yeah. now, did they do this thing where they're like, there's a meridian on this guy, and everyone's isn't in the exact same spot. Is, that, is that, are you going there? It's worse than that. Like, Two different acupuncturists don't even agree that that's the spot. That's the thing. Oh, okay. Because I thought there'd be like you know a bunch of dots on someone's arm where they all like thought it was, and they couldn't even decide. No, it's like where right, do you where do you place the G four you know acupoint to treat this? And somebody might put it here, and somebody else puts it over here. Oh, there isn't even a agreement on where these alleged points are supposed to be. What? Why is there different? There's different versions. Of well, there's different traditions, but yeah. even within the same tradition, it's like every acupuncturist has their own tradition. Oh, every acupuncturist okay. has their own scheme about where the acupuncture points are. That makes me angry. And, and so maybe there is some cultural tradition, like if you were trained by that guy, then you and that guy might agree because they trained you, but you kind of develop. But then, but then that gets you to the precision thing of, well, you're not really putting them in the same place that they are. In fact, that, and they, of course, they always derive the wrong questions from these results. They say, so this prompts the question of, how big are acupuncture points? Oh, yeah. Oh, right? right. How big? Are they so, pinpoints or are they yeah. big dots? So if it's this big, that means you could put it anywhere oh. in there and it's, it's yeah. still in that acupuncture. Yeah, but how many, how many this bigs do you have <laughs> right. on your body? If you have, well, now there's like 2,000 acupuncture points. If there's 2,000 acupuncture points and they're all huge, basically everywhere on your body is some acupuncture I point. I like that. Hey, and, cool. But which one it is... Is depends on who you are and what tradition and who you learned from and when your oh, career. Okay. Well, it's, it's really... So yeah, so so the herbalism was also incorporated into traditional Chinese medicine and and uh, and, and a lot of other things as well. So there is a lot of like using uh, like ground up tiger bones, you know, to oh. cure this and that. So there's the legitimate right, stuff in there, and there's also all the nonsense is in there as well. So they kind of he, he took all of the ancient medical traditions. 
and just said, okay, let's mash them all together and we'll call it traditional Chinese medicine. So that's why we have herbalism and acupuncture, which were enemies in the past, now are all under this one artificial umbrella of it's not traditional, it may be derived from you know Chinese culture, and it's certainly not medicine, right? Oh. Um, so anyway, yeah, the, the, so that's where we are. So it's like it's it's great. It's like asking somebody about homeopathy, how does it work? You know, how does it work when you have no active ingredient, and you know, once you know, like things are diluted to the point where there's nothing left. And some homeopaths think, you know, again, there's multiple traditions there as well. They'll say, mm-hmm. yeah, you can take a little bit of dust from the Berlin Wall and then dilute it out of existence to treat a sense of oppression. Because so that's that's like homeopathy. That. It's metaphor. It's witchcraft. Wait, it's it, literal it, it, witchcraft. Would you make that up? No, no. The Berlin Wall that's has legit. memories yeah, of people's oppression. You see, it's infused. Or owls. 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 For uh, Michael Marshall came across this one. Uh, uh, a bit of an owl feather or something, mm-hmm. and eventually it'll help you with night fears. Or I don't know. But I can't wait, remember. Wait, what about the what percent. about the opposites thing with homeopathy? Like the bir- that's direct. Yeah. So you've so got to find a happy it. wall. And give it to a depressed, right? <laughs> no, 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 but serious. the point is, the, the, is you give the opposite, right? So the Bar- Berlin Wall is a symbol of oppression. So you give a, di- a homeopathic version of the Berlin Wall to treat oppression, oh, right, right. the oh, feeling of right. oppression. Like, like, so cures ac- like. So acupuncture has the same sort of, it's, it's mythology in the same way. So you people know? are drinking, like, but do you think that they actually are putting pieces of the Berlin Wall into? They are. Well, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Yeah, but like, and you can just in- infinitely reproduce oh, that. Actually, right? Jay, Jay has come up with a really good point. We long suspect that uh, the large manufacturers in Australia, why would they bother? They just yeah. churn out the yeah. sugar pills. Uh, maybe there are some people who work there who sincerely believe, but I've seen the process. You can see it online, and it's it's almost comical if it, it wasn't is. so sad. So there, and part part of what Richard's referring to. So you know, with homeopathy, you see, do zero dilutions until you, like the dilution is so much there's there's no. Wait, my favorite, my favorite anecdote or whatever, like explain it. But I think Bob, you were the first person to tell me this. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, there is a very common uh, dilution, like three hundred or something. Thirty C is probably the most common. Yeah, yeah but there but there's a dilution that's out there that's very common that you would need a sphere of water the size of. The, the solar, solar system yeah, that's, to that's create to have one molecule of active yeah, ingredient to have a chance so of being one molecule. If you, you, right, right, right. But also the remedies themselves are fanciful. So I always like a homeopathy is you start with fairy dust and then you dilute it out of existence. Right, that's a homeopathic <laughs> remedy. With, with acupuncture, you start with these mythical points that don't exist. You start with astrology and then you you stick needles into them, or you don't. Right. So the other thing is when you get to the clinical evidence, it, the clinical evidence pretty clearly shows that it doesn't matter where you stick the needles. So of course, it doesn't matter where you stick the needles because acupuncture points aren't real. Well, you don't even have to, you can but just it, poke you, someone yeah, with a toothpick. you can just poke someone thing. with toothpicks, so it's clearly an elaborate placebo. There's no actual physical thing happening. So the clinical evidence is consistent with the basic science, it's consistent with the history, in that none of this is real, and that's why it doesn't work beyond what placebo effect you get out of having the therapeutic relationship with the acupuncturist and them being nice to you and laying on the table and listening to, to music for a half an hour while they palpate your points, and then by the time, I even, I, an acupuncturist said to me once, oh, by the time I stick the needles in, the patient's already had the therapeutic response. Mm-hmm. You know, and I said, well, why do you bother to stick the needles in right. then, right? Why do you even bother to do that? He didn't really have a good answer for me for that, but. <laughs> I mean, luckily, acupuncture doesn't really hurt, you know. Well, uh, yes, it does. What? I, there was just a case report that I, that I saw today where somebody died because an acupuncturist stuck a needle in their chest and it went into their heart. Holy And Christ. they got a. Wait, they, wait, wait. A, they, I said a, it hurt, like, 
like that's wow. different. They they pierced the guy's pericardium. Yeah. Pericardium, yeah. Yeah, okay. The, I'm and you can get a pneumothorax, you can get a hematoma, you can wow. get an infection. Look at any picture online of somebody doing acupuncture and count up how many times they're wearing sterile gloves. It's right. like never, Zero. right? So we're often asked, what about dry needling? What's the difference between dry needling and acupuncture? The answer is with dry needling, they wear gloves. That's the difference. Oh, well, that makes all the difference. You could do homeopathic acupuncture and get a two-for-one. Yeah. Homeopathic magnetic oh, gosh, acupuncture. Oh, don't give people... Someone's going to get an idea with here. With needles. Psychic acupuncture. Psychic acupuncture. Wait, over the phone. Over the yeah, phone. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, Jay, over the phone. You download it from the internet. That's right. There's also, um, I will refer you to a, a book. So this is a, a book written in the 1890s by an English surgeon who was in China. And his first-hand account, now we have a first-hand account from somebody who was there in the 1890s as to what they were actually doing, what, what the healers in China were actually doing. And it was barbaric. I mean, absolutely barbaric. They would stick a poker in a guy's abdomen and leave it there for days. That was the treat. That was their acupuncture. Why? That you had, that you wow. poke stuff in stuff. How big right? Was that was wow. that like big. Like a fire, like a poker. Like think see. like a knitting needle, right? That's like the kind of thing that they were sticking in people, not these little filiform needles. They, they, they were they were doing they would burn your skin. Worse than the like cupping, you know what cupping was? Cupping was oh, you draw the blood to the surface and then you lance it lance and bleed it, right, them. Right. right, that's what cupping was. Holy wow! And it's still that in Iran, that's still what cupping is, right? Oh, wow. But but it, but now it's no no. It's the, the, the swimmers have the little things that yeah. just, oh, yeah. and we're sucking out the toxins. Well, that's not what they were doing. Sucking out toxins. They were doing bloodletting. I would love to see like a, a, a reenactment of it that's accurate to the history. Mm-hmm. I think it would be really like mind blowing, right? That'd be pretty cool. Right. Oh, I'm thinking movie. That's great. Mini series. Yeah. That would be a great documentary. It would be a great. Yeah. You know, again, like, right. and I don't know why there isn't more interest in doing this. Like, you take a story that everyone knows, which is completely wrong, and you tell the real story. I mean, why isn't that a thing? It is. It, but Steve, you know what? It is a thing because like, we're getting these historical. I've just yeah. watched the show. Like, the, I forget the exact name of the show, but it's like the food that built America. Mm-hmm. Man, I mean, it's not, it's not like it's not populated by these amazing actors. It doesn't matter because they're telling you the story of like these companies like Kellogg's and Post and, mm-hmm. um, the guy that invented Pepsi and then the guy that came and bought, bought All the recipe. Fascinating histories that Un- nobody knows. Unbelievably yeah. interesting and provocative and high stakes type stuff. That, and it, and I, I, you know, I just watched this like a week ago, a couple of episodes. Man. This story would be so cool to see reenacted. That, oh, that blew my mind when I first learned that root beer and Coca Cola and ginger ale, these were all tonics, medical tonics sold in spas. The origin of beverages, of soda, was, was not as a beverage. It was as a, a, a healing tonics. Yeah. That's why it's root beer. It's a, it's, they, these were herbal. And, and, and in mm-hmm. fact, just carbonation. Birch beer. Carbonated birch beer. Car- carbonated ginger water beer. itself was a spa treatment. These yeah. were spa treatments. These were snake oil. Salsa water. Coca-Cola was snake oil when it started out its life. But it's freaking delicious, man. Had a little cocaine. Yeah, a little bit. It it evolved into a beverage just because uh, we invented refrigerators, you know, and we could, you know, and and soda fountains and things like that. It just evolved, but it it started out its life. And again, but now the it went down the memory hole, right? We don't now we think of it only as a beverage, and we forgot what its origins yeah. were. It's interesting. Well, I mean, it's you know, like I don't want to like sound stupid or ironic here, but it's pretty cool that Coca Cola, like something great, 
like uh, like my favorite soft drink yeah. came out of like what else good comes out of uh, pseudoscience and bullshit? Well, I mean, you know so I mean? like by the same token, we could say that astronomy evolved out of astrology. Yeah, right. right. It doesn't really yeah, matter. Astronomy is legit. Neuro- yeah. neurology out of uh, Fr- well, phrenology didn't evolve out of phrenology, but, but that was part of the. The, tr- the tradition stimulated it. Yeah, I think. chemistry out of alcohony, whatever. Yeah, so yeah, so science can evolve out of pseudoscience and delicious delicious beverages. And delicious beverages can evolve out of snake oil. Caffeine delivery systems. Yeah. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, the Great Courses Plus. You guys, this is college level learning, but without student loans or the pressure of homework or grades, mm. I can speak mm-hmm. to this. This is a better deal. <laughs> plus, the Great Courses Plus makes it possible to watch or listen to lectures at any time. And the best part is you're not waiting for some class to start or stop. You could just watch these videos anywhere you want, anytime you want, from any device that you have. So this week they told us we could actually just promote whichever one we want, which is really cool. So I think I'll give a nod to my brother Steve, who has some stuff on there. Or so I hear, Steve. Is that true? <laughs> so, yeah. As we've mentioned before, I have two courses with the the great courses plus your deceptive mind the scientific guide to critical thinking skills and medical myths lies and half truths what we think we know may be hurting us uh so these are both solidly skeptical courses you get to watch me or listen to me you know for they're each 24 30 minute courses they were a lot of fun to do the editing process was was really great. They, you know, they they work with you to really hone the material. Still, two two great courses that I'm proud of. And you can listen to those courses and so many others right now because they're giving Skeptics Guide to the Universe listeners a free trial, unlimited access to the entire library. But to get this offer, you need to sign up now through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com/skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com. Slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, let's let's change gears a little bit, Bob. So there's an, an enduring interest in nuclear rocketry, right? That as there should be, yes, as there should be. So give get us up to date on this. Give us a little bit of the history there too, and where are we now? Yeah, it's. It, um, I've always been frustrated for decades. Uh, chemical rockets are great, of course, they're wonderful. We've done so much with them, but. It's, you know, there's limitations and there's trade-offs and, and there's other, there's better options and uh, nuclear uh, thermal propulsion is, is one of them. And it's, we actually did research on these types of rockets um, in, in the 50s and we actually built prototype engines and tested them. Um, Bob, can you explain, like, physically, what does it look like? What do they do? How do they function? They, well, they, they, the rockets that, they're, that, that are now in the news, um, there's kind of been a resurgence of interest uh, in them. It's, it's, using, it's using nuclear energy instead of chemical energy. And, and nuclear energy is, uh, is the, the energy density compared to chemical is it's just millions, it's of, millions of times. It, it's, it's fission. And the idea would be to take something like a ball of uranium that's going through fission and then taking the propellant and running it over the, uh, the ball of uranium and then heating it up to, say, 2,500 degrees. So what, what's the, what would the propellant be? And then, and then like hydrogen. And, um, and, then that, and then that would, uh, and that would uh, accelerate it and, use, and you, that would come out the, the end of your rocket. And, uh, but is that and, like us blasting radiation all over the planet? No, no, because no, it, it's, just, it's heating it up and expanding it. And uh, the, the, benefits, the benefits are th- – there's, there's lots of benefits. First off, um, when it's all said and done – uh, you end up with an exhaust velocity that's twice as, twice as much as, as a chemical rocket, even the best chemical rockets. But the reason why 
um, this is uh, in the news is because uh, this past year, the House Appropriations Committee uh, earmarked $125 million for nuclear thermal pr- propulsion research. Mm-hmm. And then just this past week, the, uh, the administrator of NASA, Bridenstine, he said humanity's next giant leap could be enabled by next-gen nuclear tech. Uh, this is absolutely a game changer for what NASA is trying to achieve. So you, some people may not have heard of, uh, of nuclear thermal propulsion, and, and uh, I found a great quote. So we all know JFK's moonshot speech, right? Everyone has heard this, I believe. He said, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before the dec- this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and bringing him back safely. Everyone has heard that, but did you know what he said the very next paragraph? It's no. not what you could do for the moon. It's what the moon could <laughs> no. do. No. The very next paragraph, he said, no, he said, he said, secondly, the, the first sentence is kind of not per- that pertinent, but he said, secondly, an additional 23 million together with 7 million already available will accelerate development of the rover nuclear rocket. This gives promise of someday providing a means for even more exciting and ambitious ex- exploration of space, perhaps to the very end of the solar system itself. So he said this right after his famous talk, his famous yeah. mention of going to the moon. That very next paragraph, he's talking about nuclear rockets, which at that time had been had been investigated since the 50s. Oh, man, imagine so, if they just I, went with oh that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So the bottom line, then, you've got this nuclear thermal propulsion. Now, this is a solid core. There's different types of, of uh, nuclear engines, and one of them, the, the kind of the lowest hanging fruit is this, this solid core core, like a marble-sized bit of uranium. I think it's 235. So what you end up with is that a, a, a velo- a exhaust velocity twice as fast, a ship, a ship travel time that's probably half, half. So you can essentially go, instead of six to nine months to Mars, it would be three to four months. An amazing saving, amaz- amazing savings of time. You don't need gravity assist. You know, it's so frustrating. We're sending a rocket to Pluto or Jupiter. That's great. Yeah. Oh, wait, but well, you got to go. So, so, so Steve's Jupiter, we send the rocket this way. Oh, it's got to go around Venus. Then yeah. it's got to go around Earth. And then, oh yeah, let's do a gravity. And finally, it, it gets to its destination. You're waiting years because it, it's to save money. So they want to save money because they don't want to have to launch so much fuel that so it could go directly there. Uh, yeah, are you just saying like they get it up there and they just kind of go in a straight line where it's going to be? Pretty, pretty much. That is freaking amazing. Pretty much. So, oh, so, we, so we're talking, Jay, they're talking 100 days, like 100 that, days that to, is to a, Mars. That is literally like an order of magnitude game changer right there. Jay, it's, it's, it's huge. Also, if you miss, if you, there's windows to go to Mars, right? Sometimes yeah, yeah. Mars is far away, sometimes it's close. Like, oh, I missed my window. Damn, I got to wait two years before the window is optimal. That's pathetic. And then, uh, let's I see. would think it'd be better than that because of the fuel equation, right? So, because the nuclear fuel is a lot less than chemical rockets, right? Than chemical fuel, right? Because it's just that. What do you mean a lot less? Do you like you need less or you need less, less fuel? You need less fuel. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, the, but the, 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 the is, rocket though, equation you is you need fuel to carry the fuel, fuel to carry the fuel to carry the fuel. You can reduce that formula. Wait, 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 wait. Right. There's a lot of structure around this, this, this reactor. There's a lot of things that you need. So, the, so when it's all yeah, said okay. and done, you got to add a, a extra weight okay. to, 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 for this thing to even to work properly. So, but the bottom line is you can carry more cargo, but you go twice as fast and it takes you, you can do it in half the time. That's, that's awesome. a good, all right, that's but a with good more cargo, which probably right, offsets. Right. It's not, right. Right. So, but the big thing, the big thing though is that mm-hmm. the less time in space is really fantastic because of the radiation in space. And this is something that's, I don't think it's widely appreciated. And Bridenstine actually mentioned this. He, he was talking about how, uh, this less time in space means that you would be less susceptible yep. to the, to the, to, you know, to what the, the radiation does. Galactic, cosmic rays, you've got solar radiation. That just is horrible for you. If you go to the, to Mars and back on a chemical rocket, by the time you come back, you could have gotten 
you know, a, you know, a lifetime or more of, of radiation dose. It's, it, and not even including the time you're spending on unprotected on Mars. And there's even been studies, some recent studies actually took mice and they, what they finally did with these mice was they, they, um, subjected them to a dose of radiation that's equivalent to what you would get in traveling to space. It wasn't just one big shot of radiation. It was just this, this slow, the slow accumulation over time. And the mice were fried. They were like, they exhibited serious memory and learning impairments and became more anxious and fearful as well. And, uh, that sounds I mean, like me. And this is just, <laughs> and this is just traveling, you know, the short distance to Mars. I mean, a human traveling to, to Saturn or Jupiter, forget about it. They'd we need shielding. A, we need shielding. It'd be a blob of jelly. Yeah, the problem with shielding, though, is that it's way, way too heavy. heavy. I know, but that's where the nuclear weapon, that's where the nuclear engine comes in. The nuclear engine can carry the shielding as well. Bob, aren't they saying to use water, like an inch of water or something? Water is great. It would be great for that. But still, water is dense and heavy. The problem is that the gravity well of the Earth, it would, you know, you, basically $10,000 per pound. To get, to yeah, get we need we space. need like you know like it's easy to say this, but we need to like get ice in outer space and put it in orbit around the Earth and fill up the ship in space. And that well, ha- the other thing is you're not going to launch a ship from Earth to Mars, right? That wouldn't be ultimately the well, system some, wait, that we Steve, would develop. Some some people are saying that we should. No, what I was saying is you have a ship in orbit. And then you launch, oh, you, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. raise yeah, your crew up to that ship, yeah. and that ship is just looping between Earth and Mars and never lands. You're never going to land a big shielded ship, you know, with a massive nuclear <laughs> thermal engine on the planet. That's just go, you shuttling back between the, between Earth and Mars. Then you have landers that go from, right. from that, you know, or shuttles or whatever. Yeah, there's lots of different that's, ways. This, this so you've got it all worked out, huh, Steve? Right. Yeah. yeah. That's why they invented the, the, the shuttle. Yeah, the Enterprise never lands on a planet. Yeah. Not, not purposefully. Yeah, you know, in the, remember in what, it was one of the, the Kelvin Star Trek movies when the Enterprise was under the ocean? Mm-hmm. I didn't like oh, that. Yeah, the second, oh, yeah. the second. That bothered me. I'm like, movie. you know what? That ship is not Star supposed Trek to go. Into darkness? It's not yeah. supposed to be underwater like that. It's just stupid. Like, <laughs> it why was it? stupid. It felt, it felt wrong. So, so hopefully this will take, I mean, 125 million is a pretty good amount of money. And if you have the NASA administrator touting this and saying that we need to really, that this is going to be a game changer for NASA. So I'm, I'm very encouraged that we're going to start taking this seriously. But, you know, I've heard this before. I'm trying not to get my hopes up. But I, I, hopes up. Yeah. But, uh, and, it, you know, who knows? It could still take a generation or two before I mean, we really Kennedy see something like... do it. Right. Is there any waste product? I, I mean, it doesn't sound like it from what you said. Nuclear fission has waste. But the other thing is, the, the real concern is what happens when it crashes, right? Yeah. That's that's yeah. the concern. Like is, the Cassini uh, conundrum? If, like, if, there, if it blows up on the launch pad, you know, then right. where, where does what happens to the uranium then? That's yeah, the I mean, concern. These, yeah, these reactors would be so shielded that it could survive a crash. But the big thing about this next-gen... You feel better now. No, the, the most, one of the most important things about this next generation nuclear tech is that years ago you needed to do you need to use highly enriched uranium. Yep. That's like close to weapons grade. That's the stuff that's really scary, and security around that would be unbelievable because you don't want any other nations mm-hmm. getting any of this. Uh, what they can do now, they think, is use this, this low enriched uranium, which is not weapons grade. This is like reactor grade uranium, much safer. You can't take that and, and easily make that uh, weapons grade. So that's thorium. a huge advantage. Ooh, I love thorium. Because you can't weaponize I want my that, thorium so. reactors. All right. Richard is going to give us a report from Down Under on psychic detectives. You've had some personal. Yes, yeah. It's uh, one of the reasons I got into skepticism in the first place is uh, my heart lies in the paranormal side of investigation and the monsters and the UFOs. Not so much the UFOs anymore and the aliens, uh, but certainly the the thing that continues to um, dog our society are so-called psychics for many reasons. And one of the things that uh, particularly gets on my craw, is that the expression, on the craw, in the craw? 
a psychic detectives, people who claim that they help... Stuck in my craw? Stuck in my craw, thank you. Help the police uh, solve crimes and, and uh, missing people and things like this. Why do, and it's true, a lot of the general public, if you were to ask them, think that there are psychics out there who help police? This is a commonly held... Uh, it's like a given, right? It's like yeah, it's, it's like, like oh, a yeah. given, yeah. Everybody knows that. Well, sometimes... Psychics are consulted by police, it's true. And it's no good skeptics saying, oh, psychics don't use police, that's all a myth. No, sometimes psychic, uh, sometimes police actually use psychics, believe it or not. Or I should say quickly, when I say the word psychic, I mean air quote psychic. I mean people who claim psychic powers for whatever reason. Right. It's just, we got used to the shortcut of just saying psychic. Psychics. Alleged, Alleged, or, alleged or the shortcut of saying Chinese medicine. And it's yeah. not medicine, but anyway. Yeah. So there are very famous examples, especially here in the, the United States. One of the most famous is Alison Duvois. Is she still a thing here? Uh, her name comes up, yeah. She was the basis of the TV show Medium. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people find a happy hunting ground in Australia. John Edward is a classic example for... I don't know, the best part of two decades, he comes to Australia twice a year. Once in the middle of the year to promote his tour at the end of the year. He's doing it again and again. Wait, 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 wait. He, he, rolls, himself, he rolls himself all the way to Australia to say, I'm coming back in six months? Yep. <laughs> he'll, go, he'll do a, a brief publicity tour where he'll appear on the morning chat shows, radio, and they have him willingly. They open up the, the door and the red carpet is rolled out because he rates. People will watch him, especially the morning uh, uh, chat shows and things like that. And then he'll come back and do his big uh, auditorium shows in November, December. All right, so then we're even because we, we took Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> you took Ken Ham. Yeah, that's right. Oh, <laughs> yes. and, and Ray Comfort. And Ray Comfort. Did we take Victor Zamet or is he a thing still? Uh, he's very old. Yeah, Victor Zambit is a guy who said that he had a million-dollar challenge for skeptics to prove the afterlife wasn't real. <laughs> anyway, so people like uh, Alison Devoir then becoming a TV series helps to entrench this uh, feeling out there in the broader community. And shows like Sensing Murder. Is this made it to the United States, the show I've Sensing Murder? I've All right. not heard that. As far as I know, and I could be wrong, it started in Australia where it had a series or two and then went to New Zealand. Basically, they get a group of the best psychics in the country and they set them to solve cold cases. And in all the series, of course, they've never solved any cold case at all. And not taking into consideration the awful tragedy that happened in New Zealand just recently, the, the terrible massacre, uh, until then, there wasn't that many murders in New Zealand. So any psychic worth their salt could easily research most of the murders in New Zealand, and when they're on the TV show, they can they can come up with these amazing facts as if by miracles. No, there's just not that many to to know and to research. But the show, I think the show was in production recently. Uh, probably the ratings have gone down. It was in Australia for a brief time, and when I was the president of Australian Skeptics way back in 2004, I wrote a long letter to the head of the network that produced the show, you know, signed Richard Saunders, president of Australian Skeptics, and I started it with a word saying, this is not a knee-jerk reaction from a group of skeptics, and I outlined point by point, ending with, if psychic detectives were real, then we would encourage them, we would support them, and they would be in every police station, like uh, the kitchen has a toaster. And he wrote me back... Uh, a polite standard letter, 
saying that we cater to all our audience and we're not suggesting, and it's up to the audience to decide, blah, blah, blah. Oh, blah, yeah, blah, right. Blah. Isn't that such a cop-out? Like, oh, it is. It, it really is. <laughs> cop-out. Yeah, right. What, what really was a, a, a big pity was the ABC in Australia, which is like our PBS. It's the, it's the national broadcaster, very highly regarded, very highly regarded. Uh, balanced journalism and all the rest of it uh, succumb, and they had a sh they had a wonderful science show called Quantum, great popular science and and well presented. Then went it went on its summer hiatus, so they showed in its time slot a show from America called Psychic Detectives. So we awarded the head of programming that year our annual Bent Spoon Award, which is for the perpetrator of the most preposterous piece of paranormal or pseudoscientific piffle. piffle. And did that person know that you gave him the Spoon Award? Oh, they know, but they never show up to collect it. Yeah. <laughs> so you, what do you do? Do you actually send them the spoon? No, no. The spoon is, a, is, is it's on a plinth. Oh, is that that big spoon? Yeah, you've seen it. Yeah, so, but wait, though. But do you actually send them a, a letter or anything to kind of shame them a little bit? Um, good question. I can't remember if we did or didn't in that case, but it's widely publicized, so they would have known. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe we should with a, anyway. Well, so yeah, it's a little more in your, because I, I like that it's social justice. It's like, okay, you're going to do that. Well, you know what? Yeah. We're going to ridicule you because, yeah. Yeah. Well, w w uh, some years before then, un unfortunately, or around the same time, we awarded it to the ABC again because they had a program called Second Opinion, meaning, well, we've had the medical opinion. What does the alternative medicine oh, say great. about Equal it? time to, to nonsense and if, ideas. And uh, I, I have, a, uh, if I do say so myself, a staggering collection of skeptical videos going back decades. I've carefully um, collected, and I've got most of the series of Second Opinion. If you ever want Nightmare Steve, I'll send it to you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Videos. PAL or NTSC? Which, uh, Doesn't matter anymore. Know about, no, is that, that's like way archaic yeah, right is. there. They work on everything now, which is a good thing. Uh, but Australia has had an interesting history with psychic detectives or people claiming this sort of thing. There was a, a very famous case in Australia, probably the most famous missing persons case, is called the Beaumont Children. This happened in Adelaide in, uh, nine, in the early 1960s, I think January 66, that's right. On Australia Day, our national day, January 1966 in Adelaide, three children aged nine, four, and seven disappeared from the city of Adelaide. They went to the beach, and that was it. They haven't been seen since, nor have all the items they were wearing and had about their person, their bags, nothing. They disappeared off the face of the earth. And to this day, it's one of Australia's most enduring missing persons mysteries. Wait, wait, they don't know even today what happened to them? Not a clue, no. It's cold as you, you, you can't even imagine. The first thing I would think was that they were kidnapped by a family member. I think that every possible avenue of, since 1966 has been explored. Then it was a great white shark attack. Or a dingo. Or a dingo. <laughs> Is that taboo? Is that too soon? <laughs> no, but, but it, it's, it's, it's startling when you think about it. But I, there are, sadly, children who go missing and there, there's no trace of them. So, but this, in, nine, in 1960s Australia, this is pretty rare. This, this sort of thing didn't happen very often. So there was big public interest in this, and there were search parties, and, and it made the news quite a lot. Then a Dutch resident living in Adelaide heard about, and I don't know how exactly, but anyway, heard about a Dutch psychic called uh, Gerard Corset, who was making a name for himself as a psychic detective. And they contacted this, this guy in the Netherlands, 
And he started to send back messages. I'm seeing visions of these children. The press picked up on this and it became a sensation. It became the hottest story in the country that this famous Dutch psychic was going to come to Australia or at least send visions and help. And finally, he was convinced to actually fly all the way to Australia, to Adelaide. And I spent many hours in the uh, the State Library in Sydney where they have the original copies in, on microfilm of the, the newspapers at the time. And he was headline newspaper day after day coming to Australia. Here's his latest seeings. He's nearly here. And when he arrived, the newspaper headlines and in the report say it was like the Beatles had arrived. Oh, so the did this throne. guy, is this guy, did he know that he's BS or did he actually think he was psychic? Do you know? I don't know. Uh, he, he died many years ago. Um, I suspect he probably thought he was the real deal. A lot of them do. Yeah. When in doubt, they, they probably think they're the real and deal for whatever reason. Yeah. No. So what I, I found it fascinating. I followed this psychic and his entourage around Adelaide via the newspaper reports. Day after day, what did he do next? What did he do next? And as far as I can gather from all the reports is he got in a car, somebody drove him around according to his visions. So he went up the street a couple of miles, got out, looked around, made notes, followed by the press, got back in his car, walked over to the... and, and so on and so forth. Finally, he announced that the children were buried under a freshly laid uh, concrete block in a new warehouse. All right? That was it. And uh, then he left the country. And was that good enough for Australia? Well, it it was interesting because it went even up to the uh, the premier of the state. It was like your governor here, the you know the top guy in the the state the government. State, yeah. Right, governor. And that's he, right, governor. That's right, governor. <laughs> so I went up to the governor, <laughs> and it it got to a stage where the cabinet were had to decide whether to rip up this concrete. But on the advice of the police. They didn't because the police said there's no chance the children are there. It doesn't make any sense for right. very good reasons that I don't have access to. The police said no. So they didn't. But can you imagine the citizens at the time all keyed up? They've had the announcement from this guy. They all went to this place. They're waiting for the excavation. It didn't happen. So uh, a couple of years afterwards, a group, or by early the next year, I should say, a group calling itself the Citizens Action Committee had raised $40,000. Now, $40,000 in 1967, that's a huge amount of money in Australia. It's, it's anywhere in the world. It's a, it's a huge amount. And they had a private excavation of the warehouse. That's how convinced and keyed up they were that the psychic said that's where they must be. Of course, it was to no avail. There, were no, there was nothing, nothing found. But it gets worse. It was, people couldn't let it go. So in 1996, another excavation. Of the same site? The same site, yeah. Deeper and more. And yeah. Isn't that, so entrenched was this feeling that the psychic detective was right all those years ago, but wasn't given enough, enough chance. Talk about the, preying on the emotion of an yeah. entire country for decades. That is so sadistic. If, if anybody wants to you know, have a look, the Beaumont children. That's the, 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 the so, case I'm talking So, Richard, about. how many kids were there? Do you know? Three. Three. Yeah, you said it would like, think about the reaction of the, the country or the locals or the people that were involved. I was yeah. thinking about the family. Like, yeah. that, what that psychic did to that family. Yeah. That that is criminal. The the parents uh, is is as of my last understanding, they're still alive. They're very 
old, and in fact, uh, Croset visited them on his way out of the country. But the mother uh, refused to believe her children were dead. He said they were dead. She refused yeah. to believe it. Uh, but it's still, it's, I mean, it's still going on. When I was, uh, did a TV show some years back in Australia, I was a skeptical judge, judging skeptics. It was a lot of fun. One of the psychics on the show, a lady named uh, Debbie Malone, who's lovely. I've, I've, no, I've known Debbie on and off for years. I see her occasionally at Mind Body Wallet festivals and things like that. That's what we call Mind Body Spirit. Um, now, in my opinion, she's a sincere believer in her own magical powers, but she's got the reputation of being Australia's psychic detective. And she says she's helped police, and she rattles off a lot of famous cases in Australia, famous murders and things like that. And what's interesting is that when the press report what happens, they'll usually say the police approached Debbie Malone for help, or the police approached the psychic for help. But even in, in some cases, in her own words, she had visions and went to the police. That's lost. That's lost in the translation. That's lost in the media statement. It's more, it's far more sexy to say the police went to the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. One case in particular where there was a missing child, she directed the police to look near a dam, which they did. Who knows how much money and time and resources that, that ended up costing. Of course, found nothing, and sadly, the child was found um, dead in a suitcase. The mother had committed the murder, but the psychic, of course, in this case, was absolutely that, no you know, help whatsoever. There, okay, so the thing that troubles me is at that point right there, that psychic doesn't get in trouble. Like, not, there's no consequence. Yeah, hey, they, they, this I is agree. not an exact science, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you write all the time. Yeah, no, well, no one said she was 100% accurate. Right. You know? I agree with you. There should absolutely be a consequence for this. Uh, I and I think that uh, and, and some commanders, police commanders in Australia, get it. Yeah. And they say no, we do not, and we should not, and yeah. we discourage it. But not. But police are just like you and I. You know, there's a variation. And when, in some cases, police have gone to these people, and they have gone to these people, yeah. and they've received a cold reading. Police aren't trained in the psychology of a cold reading. Mm -hmm. Very few people are. Uh, I've made it one of my studies in life. You know, I can analyze re psychic readings. I had to for the show, and I've, I've practiced and I've trained over many, many years. So I was very honored last year to give a talk about this whole subject to the Australian Federal Police and the New South Wales Police and the Defence Force. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really, that's awesome. That's what funny. did they think about it when you gave them the information? Were there, was there, were there any like, oh, wow moments for them? Oh, yeah. And lots of laughter, which I took as good because they could yeah. see the absurdities of it. But yeah. I think I got my point home. Yeah, but uh, as we learned from talking to, you know, the, the, uh, investigator who looks at actual like psychic con artists, like con people out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. The police generally are not that interested in those cases. They're like, well, this is your fault for being stupid, which is completely wrong. It's blaming the victim. Right. That's yeah. the, victim blaming? Worse. Um, so there's a lot of education that has to take place in, on the part of the police, on the part of the media, and because it, it all facilitates the real vicious cons. You know, if yeah. you're doing it, you know, what's the harm? They may think that they're basically like, I mean, the could harm you imagine, is, like, you're, you're that level of a con artist. You're, you're, you're stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from people. And then imagine being that con artist, finding out that the police don't care. Yeah. Like, talk about throwing gasoline on a fire. fire. Like, oh, yeah. my God, we could, we, we, could, we could do whatever the hell we want. Right. That's like exactly. that's like the mob. There's the, and there's a book, The Psychic Mafia. Psychic Mafia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good book. Yeah. Good book. It's like, it is a mob. 
It is absolutely a mob. And you try to break into that business. Like, if you're not paying a vig to the guy who owns the territory, they'll break your kneecaps. Territory. The psychic territory. It's it's true. It's true. It's a mob. It is is a mob. It's not a metaphor. Wow. All right. So you want action in my town. Let me talk. What are you good at? What do you do? Well, you got cards? What is it? That's the video. You got tarot cards. Palm reading. All right. Because I got 15. Now, look, I'm going to take 25%. Shut up or it's going to be 30, all right? You good with that? And then the psychic goes, I knew you were going to say that, right? Like, get the hell out of here. All right, Jay, uh, you're going to tell us. So this is an interesting little study about fake news, which we know is bad, but it could actually might even be worse than you think. Yeah, this, this is like one of those things where once you wrap your head around this, you're going to sink a little bit lower into the, the mire of how just how bad is our memory. Man, this is this really shook me, just yeah. like researching this. I don't like this at all. I hate. All right, stay strong, brother. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm getting tired over here of, of finding out just how bad our memory is. So our perception of reality it's all right, Jay. You'll soon forget about is it. very bad. <laughs> our perception of reality is already completely spoiled by our like the filter that we have, our bias, right, our biasy is so profoundly effective at changing just what we see and hear. And we've seen examples of this with that whole, you know, I forget the name of it, where they, the guy says something, and if, you, if you're seeing a video, what, what's the that? The McGurk effect? The McGurk effect. M- McGurk effect. The McGurk. Yeah, so what you hear is affected by what you're seeing. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's bow, one. Bow, bow, yeah, yeah, right? That, that, when I first saw that, Fob, I'm like, uh, what's, what is wrong with my perception? Yes. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, I tell you, your perception's constructed based upon multiple sensory you know, inputs. And so if you, the person looks like they're saying F, you hear F. If it looks like they're saying V, you hear V, even though the sound is the same. Yeah. Mm, and right. the thing that bothers me about that, the McGurk effect, I always want to say the McGurk, 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 there's something funny about that word, the McGurk. McGurk. So the, the, that effect, though, out of all the illusions I've seen and all of like the, yeah. the things that deal with it, that was the one when I finally really accepted that, like, okay, we can't trust anything. <laughs> that really made me realize it. But this, this study like goes into a place where they, they did a study where they're finding out that when we recall a memory, your brain, as we've all heard before, your brain is revisiting that memory and you're, it's reconstructing the memory. It's not like a hard piece of data that's being read and your brain leaves it alone and it's still exactly the way it was. It gets altered when you remember it, right? Okay, we know that. How about this? This is the, this is the, the MF in this news article. Even if you aren't recalling the memory, your brain could be shifting that memory. You're not even thinking about it. It's all the stuff in your head and your brain, lots of things could be happening to it. So one thing is, it, it's, we, you know, we can say it's shifting the memory. It's, con, it's confabulating it with other memories in your head. It's eroding the memory where it's like losing accuracy and other things could be swapped in. It was, a, it was a dog. Well, now it's a cat. Just like that. Okay? It could be erasing the memory. Our memories fade. That's a gentle way of saying your brain is erasing it. It's gone. The memory doesn't exist in your head anymore, right? Okay. That, and that, that's actually not, to me, not as bad as your, me- your memory getting altered. Well, scientists wanted to study this. So they, they have, so here's an example. Let me give you an example of something. So you have someone that claims to have something stolen, right? So you have, you have like people that are running the research. This was a legit research that they did. You have someone who is part of the research team, like saying out loud, I've had something was stolen. I, you know, a guy just robbed me, right? And then you have a fake cop come up to that person and say, what happened? Tell me what happened. And so the fake cop and the fake guy are standing there and they're, they're telling the story loudly. Other people are hearing it. Then the cop goes around to bystanders who are not part of the research team. What happened? Some of the people, half the people 
will say, I don't know, I didn't see or hear anything. The other half of the people will be like, yeah, I saw it. How about that? I, so they, they say, I saw it, and they give details that didn't happen in the discussion between... Because nothing happened, right? Nothing so this happened. This is the class thing. Nothing actually happened. Right. It was just a Confederate guy in a bus stop says, hey, somebody stole my radio. And then the cop comes in and takes eyewitness testimony. Did you see anybody? Wow. And they, they just say, yeah, I saw a guy. They wow. described the guy. They described the radio. But they're coming they, up with details that never were communicated. Details. They're inventing the yeah. details. So but, that, they, but they, subconsciously, they, that's their memory now. Like they're yeah. confabulating and, it to make sense of what they, what, what's in front of them. But the, the thing that, like, the, the hurdle that we as skeptics have to realize here is these people are not maliciously, they're not coming up with it like on the spot, like having fun with the cop, lying to the cop. They think they saw the, the crime. And it's all because they heard they heard the conversation, and then the cop came and asked them questions, right. and, and that triggered something in their head, and now they have a false memory. Right? Yeah. That just seems almost like it can't be reality. Because mm -hmm. I, I would like to think that would... Steve, tell me honestly, have I done this? You like, have confabulated... Yeah, like, have I done that? Like, does yeah, the average person totally. do that? Like, I've actually had a scenario in my life where I think I'm remembering something that didn't happen yeah, like, like, on the spot. Every day... <laughs> How's that? All right, so we all have this experience, right? You have a conversation, maybe it's a little bit of a heated conversation. There's three people in the conversation, and then at the end of that conversation, those three people have a different memory of what just happened, yeah. right? We all experience that. Yeah. That's because they actually do have different memories of what just happened because everyone is experiencing it from their own perspective. They're filtering out different things. They're also mixing what they're thinking with what's happening. Oh, shit. Right? I got to do that. I have to do that because I have so much going on in yeah. my head. And I'm ed and this is why, like, when I, I am slightly aware that every time I tell a story, it has story creep. Yeah. Because I'm remembering, because there's a lot of times where I do that thing, like, if I only said this, and then I caught myself one time, I'm not, wait, I didn't say that. I was, I was saying, I hoped I said it. Yeah. Or and then I, you later I wish remember, I you said did, it. I, you yeah. did say it. So, like, that's happening to all of us. Yeah. Well, how many but times, get, get how many times have you heard someone talking? Describing an event that you were present, and they're describing, and you're like, hmm, that's not quite what I oh, remember. Right, and the historical right? I mean, one everybody. that we love on the Skeptics Guide was the JFK assassination. Yeah, right? yeah. You guys hear this, that we've talked about this? There might be one person that hasn't, so I'm going to say it again. You've been listening since you were 12. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm like your dad. i got to send you Christmas presents now. So, the, you know, real quick, what happened was this woman was there. Didn't really see anything. She she was at the shooting, but didn't really see anything. Yeah, so she she was the closest person to the headshot, yeah. and that's her. She has a card that says like Anita Hill. I think is name Hill, closest person to the headshot. So the first interview that they that's did her claim with her, to fame. They did the first interview. She said, "I saw nothing. I didn't. I was unaware." Then she had been interviewed so many times that you fast forward twenty years, and her story evolved from "I didn't see or hear anything" to "I was chasing after the shooter." Now, Dan. Yeah, so she added, she's the one who said, yeah, there was something in the grassy knoll. She heard, saw yeah. a little puff of smoke, and then she saw a guy, and then she, and she ultimately ends up chasing after this guy. And it was all, you could see the evolution of her memory over 30 years on every time she was interviewed on TV. Now, I used to, like in the past, hearing that story, I, I kind of interpreted it much more maliciously. I'm yeah. like, what the hell is she doing? And I was mad at her. And now I'm just like... No, she she's just a human. Yeah. She, did. she reconstructed that memory over. So she was playing a, a thirty-year game of telephone with herself. Yeah, yeah. and and the other the other 
you know, screw up in your mind here too, is it feels like it's the truth. Yeah. And there's, there's no difference between that memory and an accurate memory. And your vividness doesn't predict the accuracy of the memory. How confident you are in the memory doesn't predict it doesn't the accuracy matter. We have of the to, memory. Talk about having to have humility. Like, right. so I have memories of, like we've said this before, but it's worth repeating again, like childhood memories and things. The only way that thing that when I trust anything now, you like need my, external it's like I talk to my brothers and family members and then we also have to question each other because we would we could have polluted each other's memories. That's right. That's and we remember well. themes separate from details. Right. And guess which one is more important? The theme. Right, the theme. And also the brain prioritizes internal consistency over external validity, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, we once we, we have a model of reality in our head and we make sure that our memories fit that model of reality, even if it has to completely make up new details so, to make that so all work. So talking about things like political bias, yes, you know, and things like that, where you're you know you're cherry picking news items that only apply to what you believe, and, and you're yeah. you know, but you're also like your brain is also in the background, almost like a villain, like saying, yeah, I'm going to change the things that you perceive so you remember them differently, so they fit with the person that you yeah. are and the way that you think and your biases. So not only is our the bias filter that we have that literally changes reality as it's coming in. There's that bias filter that's constantly changing everything. But unconsciously, the bias filter is activated in yeah. doing, doing things right. behind the scenes. So get to the news item. All right, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> I know, but, I, but it is so provocative to me because it's, it's, like this, it's so scary. Okay, so a new study of 3,140 3, participants finds that exposing people to fake news created false memories of the depicted events in about half the subjects. So the, they, what they did, the researchers showed six people, they, no, they showed these 3,140 people six news stories. Two of them were fake. Half of the subjects reported false memories regarding at least one of the two fake stories. Our bit. Right? <laughs> about one-third of the subjects created details in their fake memories that were not a part of the original story. So this goes back to the bus Inventing station Inventing details. So right? they're reading. Or the they the read. Screen. They were exposed to six news items. Two of them were fake. And they took these. Half the people took those two news items. And or at least one, at least one. Right. Yeah. And change the memory so they actually have memories of something that never took place. Right. And they, and they agreed with it. So it fit, and, and because it, if it fit into their paradigm, they were more likely, they were more likely to right. remember it. And then they couldn't be, they, they were very unlikely to be dissuaded. So they told them at the end, oh, yeah. you're wrong. We made these two up. And they told them the truth about everything, and those people left. And when they tested them again, it didn't do that much. The truth if, didn't if help. If it was them in line with their, with their bias, yeah. so if you're if if the fake news yep. fit your political bias, you were twice as likely to believe it, and you were much less likely to to stop believing it when you were showed the corrected information. So the fake news persisted even after it was debunked. It doesn't. You remember you it as something that actually happened. But it's like there's there's things about it. Like you were saying, there's no difference between a totally fake memory. And, and, and a legit memory, which can we say there's a legit memory? Like, because they're all screwed up in one well, way. Well, I mean, I was an ex ac accurate memory. Right. right. Okay. They feel the same. Yeah. They could be just as vivid as each other. Right. You have absolutely no way of knowing the Yeah, truth. you cannot sense the degree to which your memory's been reconstructed and right. altered and fused and merged and altered, right? So to you, it's a memory. Memory's a memory, regardless of what, how many, what process it went through. But think about this. What this means is if a, an ideological group you know, puts out a, an item they know is fake news, saying supporting one political party or the other. It then gets in, it goes through the cycle, right? And then a week later, it's completely debunked. It doesn't matter. Yeah. The people, it's, it, it's done its damage and it's created false memories that it's a real thing, right? Let's say if we, we you know, just to go to a previous, like, let's say if somebody said, you know, Ronald Reagan was guilty of whatever, this crime, 
and that was the fake news, there's a certain percentage of people who are going to remember that as actually happening. Yeah, even e- if they e- were told that. Even if it's true. been later debunked. Yeah. So Crazy. That, so again, it's weaponizing misinformation. Yep. And, and this was Elizabeth Loftus is one of the authors on this. She's like the big, Ooh, the big she's skeptical great. memory. Read her yeah. books. But Steve, Read like, books. It, yeah. when you say what you just said is so profound, when you saying weaponizing misinformation yes. because social media is it's so pervasive. It's so everywhere. It's so completely ubiquitous in humanity now. Like we, we are almost all dialed into it. Even, even when we hate social media, right. like, cause I'm like, I'm on Facebook all the time for the SGU. I'm on Facebook all the time. And I can't tell you how much I, I, I mean, when I say I don't like Facebook, there's so many things about social media. I shouldn't just say Facebook, but there's so many things about social media I don't like. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's actually, We've had this discussion recently. I just don't think it's that good of a thing for humanity. There's so much negativity that I've found in it. But, man, I am sifting through Facebook stuff all the time. And I'm like, I don't want to be exposed. Mm-hmm. It's like a hazard of my job. Right, like, yeah. when you're into social media, you're just pile driving your head full of shit. Contamination. Yeah. It's really not healthy. Right. I really don't think it's healthy. Well, it's, it's, it is, it's a, the risk is that you're going to remember a lot of fake things as true. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Richard, yes. yes, you are going to do science or fiction on this week's episode. Oh. All right, here we go. Wow. <clears throat> An Australian version of science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with... <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. Three or four items, in this case four... Or facts, three real and one fake. Then I challenge my expert skeptical rogues here to tell me which one they think is the fake. They all have to do with Australia. So, number one. In 1964, an Australian man running low on money and keen to get home successfully posted himself from London, England to Perth, Australia in a wooden case. Number two. Australia is vast, being the world's sixth largest country, almost as big as the United States, although much smaller in population. (laughs) However, it is the only continent without active volcanoes. That's number two. Number three, Australia played a vital role in the 1969 moon landings via its radio telescopes that relayed the TV and other transmissions from the moon to Houston. What is less well known is the Apollo 11 astronauts were all trained in geology to help them understand what they would find when they reached the moon. This included a two-week stint in Australia to study the rocks in the Great Victoria Desert. There's many big deserts in Australia. And number four, Australia was the second country to give women the right to vote. One of those is fake, the other are true. Okay, so if you think the one about the man mailing himself to Sydney is the fiction, then clap. Okay, if you think that the, uh, uh, the NASA sending astronauts to Australia to study geology is the fiction, clap. Volcano. And if you think the uh, Australia, so there's two components to that one. Yep. Australia doesn't have a, a volcanoes, and it's the only continent not to have so. That they yeah, both have yeah. to be true for that to be true. Uh, so if you think the volcano one is the fiction, clap. And uh, the fourth one is Australia was the second country to get to give women the vote. If you think that is the fiction, clap. That's a pretty, pretty split. split. All right, right, so it's my turn. Okay, so um, the one about the NASA astronauts, I'm sorry if I'm not going to go in order. The one about the NASA astronauts, I I think, is is science. 
Um, I know that during their training that they they were definitely trying to give them any experience that they could find that would help them in what they were about to face. And, and you know, I, I think that the terrain, a certain terrain in Australia that would be very suited to that. The next one, we have the guy mailing himself. That was actually number one. The guy mailing himself from London to Perth in the 60s. I think that one is science as well. I, I think that uh, if the guy did it, they, the mail system did not know that there was a human being in the box. The one about the volcanoes, man, I... I am very much leaning towards this one. It's between that and the, the giving the second country giving the female vote. I just don't have any information about the, the vote. Although I think something is telling me that Australians, I mean, I, I, I believe and I know that Australians are very progressive and very, very forward thinking in that sense. And it does sound like something that Australia would do. But I have read quite a bit about Australia because we've been, we've traveled there twice. And I, I don't remember reading anything about volcanoes in Australia. So them not having an active volcano which fits into that. I'm going to say that's that. All right, wait, wait. He's saying, wait, I Can believe it. I believe it. All right, so none of them are the fiction. Wait, wait. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, good job. Which one's the fiction? Okay, I've never read anything about Australia having a volcano, ever. I've never even heard about it. never seen a TV show about it, anything. It's never happened. Nobody talks about it. They don't talk about volcanoes in Australia. Maybe they're afraid of it. Okay, I think that one's the truth. So I'm going to have to go with the woman voting. It's a fake. fake. Yep, that's fiction. Right. So, uh, Jay, number four, the women having the right to vote right. could possibly be the fiction. Evan. Um, I'm having, I need some clarification on the volcano one. Yeah. Can, uh, can you reread that question specifically? Australia is vast, being the world's sixth largest country, almost as big as the United States, although with a much smaller population. However, it is the only continent without active volcanoes. So... Are we saying Antarctica has active volcanoes? I'm not aware of that. So, by the nature of how the question is written, All right. I would think that you, that one's you make a you make a fair point. I will rephrase that. Does Australia have active volcanoes? We'll leave it at that. Australia is a, a country without active volcanoes. Okay, so uh, I'll have to put a nickel down here. We might be both wrong on that point, but anyway, we'll might be. Here. Join me. Uh, join you? About the, yeah. Okay. Well, I, maybe. <laughs> um, now, also the guy who mailed himself in the box, he didn't necessarily arrive What's in the box? alive, What's right? In the box? I mean, did, did he survive this he trip? Survived, uh, successfully yes. posted himself. Successfully. Okay, so that means he he successfully po- you know, mailed himself alive. Um, oh, so I think, Jay, should I go with you? Fine, I'll go with Jay. I'll say it, it wasn't the second country for women, women's voting okay. rights. All right, this is a tough one because I, I think they're all true. So I have exactly. to figure out which one to make wrong. So, all right, they're very good. So the um, the one about the man posting himself, I don't know that one, but it sounds so plausible. And people do are desperate to get from point A to point B. They do weird things like hide in the in the wheel hole of a plane. Yeah. If you're willing to do that, you're probably willing to mail yourself. And you could, yeah, sit in a box and have a bottle to pee and have food for the whatever the week that it's going to be. Yeah, so that's so plausible. I have no reason to think that that's the fiction. I just don't know. I haven't heard that specific story. So it could be fiction if it's not true, but it's completely plausible. The one about um, the volcano, I don't know the answer to that question. So I don't know if I don't know of any active volcanoes in Australia. That doesn't mean that they don't have any, but I just don't know about that one. The one about NASA, okay, I just watched a very long documentary about the entire Apollo program. So I'll say what I do know. I know for a fact. So yes, the 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 Australia provided critical, you know, radio communication for the Apollo program, and I also know that the Apollo astronauts who who landed on the moon 
underwent geology training and they underwent field training in order to recognize certain kinds of rock on the moon. I know that for a fact. Although nowhere in that documentary did they mention that they were in Australia. I, and I know for a fact that for some of it they weren't in Australia, they were in the deserts in the United States. But it certainly is possible, you know, there might have been, you know, so I know they did field geology uh, education. Uh, I just, I just don't know if it was, if ever was in Australia. So that's ex extremely plausible, but I don't know for sure if it's correct or not. And then the last one is the vote. So I know for certain that New Zealand was the first country to give women the vote. And so it's very plausible that Australia was the second, right? Because it wasn't the first. New Zealand, and because it's right next door, they might have felt pressure. It's like, oh, our, our mates in New Zealand gave women the vote. We better do that next. But it's a different country and different politics. Who knows? There might have been more of a conservative, you know, a political upswing at that time. I don't know. So that could, again, that could be the fiction, but it's very plausible because if you had said first, I would have known it was the fiction. If you said second, so it's smart. very... I'm just trying to work. It's like, I don't know. I'm delaying. I don't know the answer. So, having said all of that, I'm going to say that the crate one is science. I'm going to say that the vote one is science just because it, you know, it does fit well with what I actually do know. The other two are both tricky. I'll, I'll, I'm going to say I don't know... Or I'm, going to prob I'm going to say that the NASA one is correct enough from what I know that it's probably true. And it's worse than us. That, that means that the volcano one, I'll say the volcano one is the fiction. All right. That would have been my second choice. Paul. Yeah. I'm too tired to elaborate. Volcano fiction. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a role reversal. That's great. <laughs> Bob, I hope I correctly remember this moment. All right. <laughs> All right. I just want to get out so of here. So, audience, look at remember what, what you thought was the case? Yeah. Number one, the man who posted himself to Australia, this is fact. In 1964, Australian athlete Rob Reg Spears was stranded in England with not enough money to go home. He then uh, understood that you could send crates cash on delivery. So he had a special crate ah. constructed, which had a, uh, some straps he could hang on to. He had a blanket. He had a pillow. He had one bottle for water, one bottle for urine. And he posted himself via air to uh, from England to France, France to Bombay, Bombay to Perth. How Australia. long did it take, Richard? Do you know? Three days. Oh, okay. Ah, three days, not bad. bad. I was going to think a couple of weeks. That's right. That's that's why I was hoping that would trick people up because it, it sounds so incredible. He was only just, he 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 made it all the way to Perth, and uh, it was constructed so he could get out. In fact, he did get out periodically to, to stretch and pee and stuff like that. But when he got ah. to Perth Airport, he was in a, 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 a an area, so he, he got out of his box, uh, sawed a hole in the wall, jumped out and caught a ride into town. Awesome. <laughs> and he was only discovered because his friend in England got worried and alerted the press, and then it was big news. So that <laughs> oh was God, true. That is awesome. Good for him, man. I knew that one, by Good the way. You did? Well, yeah, I read that story. Let's skip to number four. Why? No particular order. Because we didn't uh, It's true. Australia was the second country to give nice. women the right to vote. So, Jay and Evan, oh, what can yeah, I say? So, which leaves us with the volcanoes and uh, the Apollo 11 astronauts. Apollo 11 astronauts. This is fiction. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the audience was right. Good job. That's right. You guys sniffed it. The they did undergo. That's true. They did undergo extensive uh, training in geology, which included Cinder Lake. The what? Oh, the dish. Yes, that that's true. Too. Yes, yeah. 
uh, there's a good movie called The Dish. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a very yeah, funny yeah. movie. Cinder Lake, they studied uh, geology in Cinder Lake Crater Field, Arizona, Grand Canyon in Arizona, Sierra Blanca, Texas, Nevada National Security Site in Nevada, which is a testing range, I think, and various locations around Hawaii, but they never came to Australia to study geology. That's fiction. Which means that the one about Australia uh, being the only continent will say, well, Australia, just whatever it is, a huge landmass, has no active volcanoes. The last active volcano, as far as we understand, was something like 5,000 years ago. No uh, volcanic activity. Wow. It's very very stable. And I must, a quick thing about giving the women the right to vote, and I will say that in 1902, Australian women were given the right to vote with the exception of the First Nations people, who weren't given the right to vote, men or women, until 1962. Whoa, that's late. Much much to our uh, country's uh, shame. So, uh, well done to Bob and Steve. No, we we were wrong. We were wrong. I thought you were right. Steve came really close. I was really close. Oh, you were really close. I'm sorry. I almost went that way. That? The audience, I mean, most, most See how Steve, like, it. Steve just played a Jedi mind trick. No, I was slightly wrong. Steve, was that from the Earth to the Moon? Yes, from the Earth to the Moon. I mean, there's a whole episode. It was so good. But they don't, you know, it's hard to know when negative. Like, they went all over the place. Did they go to Australia? I don't remember them specifically. Go. I did have a Because they need to. I was thinking that too. Why would they go to Australia? But the thing is, they needed to learn about specific kinds of rocks. Because when they got to the moon, they were looking for specific kinds of rocks that were evidence of certain kinds of geological activity on the moon. And they actually find it on one of the missions. Like, look at that white rock. Yeah, that's, the, that's what we're looking for, you know, proof of whatever, a continental crust. But so that maybe that's maybe that rock was in Australia. I don't know. That that's they needed to they needed wherever that was on Earth. That's what they needed. We needed to, it's, to go. It's to look absolutely for. plausible. It's very it's plausible. plausible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to re-listen to that to to remember. Now I've got false memories probably because it's so late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. All right. Well, good job. Good job, Richard. Good job. That was great. So well, well done. Nice well done for the sorry. audience. You guys are yeah. all yeah. out. Good job. Nice. nice. All right, Evan. You have a quote. In all of history, we have found just one cure for error partial antidote against making and repeating grand, foolish mistakes, a remedy against self-deception. That antidote is criticism. And that was either spoken or written by David Brin. David Brin. David Brin. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining me for this special show. And thank you guys all in the audience for joining us. You guys were great. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible.